0: This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. Thanks, everybody, for coming. My name is Troy Swanson. I'm the department chair of the library. Um, It's exciting to see so many people here. Um, This is going to be a fun panel discussion about a pretty serious topic. Um, I want to thank our panel members for giving up their time and uh, their expertise for this. This is our last event for the semester as part of our one book, one college program on Confederates in the Attic, which is actually a book about how we remember the Civil War. Um, PTSD is a tangential uh, topic that's, I think, very relevant to our society today, but has been relevant um, in wars throughout our history. So we're tying that in as a way to update um, some of our discussions and uh, expand our program out into areas like psychology since I know there's so many psych classes here today. I'll do quick introductions of our panel and turn it over to Nick, who's going to be our moderator. Um, At the end is Matt Cullen, who's one of our counselors. To his left is Terry Eakins from Counseling. To her left is Erica Hamilton from Psychology. To her left is Amy Williamson from Psychology. And our esteemed moderator, Nick Jesus who's also from psychology. I want to thank you all again for coming. And with that, I'll turn it over to Nick. Thank
1: you,
2: Troy. Let's give another hand to Troy and to our panelists, too. Good morning, everybody. And, uh, Troy, thanks again for inviting us uh, to speak on this topic and for having us be part of the One Book, One College program. Can you guys hear me okay? All right, good. It's nice to see a lot of people in the audience. Um Our program is going to take about 45 to 50 minutes for our panelists to talk. And then uh, we hope to have about a half hour, maybe 25 minutes to a half hour to answer to have the audience members ask the questions of the panel, too. Um, So this topic might bring up some emotions uh, in people that are in the audience. And we have uh, Terry and Matt from our Counseling Center on our panel. We also have several counselors in the audience, too. If uh, I can ask the counselors that are in the audience to raise their hands as well. Uh, So should anybody want to talk after the event, please feel free to, to come and contact them. So, Troy asked us to discuss, again, a pretty serious topic here that uh, relates to a lot of people on campus and relates to the Confederates in the Addicts book, PTSD, also known as post-traumatic stress disorder. It's affecting a lot of college students, uh, not just here at Moraine, all over the U.S. In fact, our speakers might talk about The percentages of students that have PTSD, Uh, a a recent study that I was just reading uh, from 2011 out of of, uh, the State University of New York at Buffalo showed that about 10%, 10% of college students struggle with PTSD uh, from either physical or sexual assault. If you're a veteran that has served in a war and you're attending college, that jumps to about 30% of of, of those individuals are, are, are experiencing PTSD. So what does that mean? Our college has 18,000 students that are enrolled. So if the statistics are correct, you're looking at about 1,800 students that have post-traumatic stress disorder, hypothetically. We have about 300 veteran students that are currently receiving services here at our college. That means about 100 of them have possibly PTSD. So you can see it's such a big deal. And and before we get started, I wanted to ask people in the audience, do you guys know anybody that has ever experienced trauma, maybe has experienced PTSD? Just raise your hands real quick. So we've got a, a, a large large number of students that are saying that to you. So you can see how, how, how big of a deal that is. So hopefully the info that you're going to hear today is going to answer some questions for you, help better understand the people that are in your lives, and, and and possibly give you an idea of the help that they could get or if you're experiencing something like this, the help that you can get too. So uh, that's why we've asked our panelists to to come and educate us on this topic. So we're going to start with Professor uh, Hamilton, Erica, and Matt. I'd like to start with you both, and and, and thank you for joining us. Um, Erica, we talked about PTSD, but but what, what exactly is it? I mean, what are the symptoms, maybe possibly how it's diagnosed?
3: Okay, I, I want to start off by uh, telling, you, if you um, aren't familiar, that uh, psychologists, psychiatrists use um, a, a manual um, called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Illness, and we refer to it as the DSM, and that's what we use to, um, the criteria that we use to establish a diagnosis. So with PTSD, um, we're looking at first the trauma. Um, what has the person experienced? Uh, what have they encountered, maybe something that they've heard that has uh, either caused or um, reflected death or a threat of death, um, a threat of injury or actual injury. And, uh, again, they've either experienced it, they've witnessed it, or have come in contact with it in some way. Uh, And in addition to that, we're also looking at um, how they're responding to that trauma. So did they respond with fear, um, horror, anxiety, something to that effect. So um, trauma is the first thing that we're going to look at. Uh, Then we're going to look at some of the symptoms. So are they they re-experiencing that trauma? Um, And I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. There's a list of things that the DSM tells us, but um, one example of re-experiencing it is um, having intrusive thoughts, um, an inability to control the the memories of what happened to them or what they experienced, Uh, distressing dreams, nightmares. Uh, We could also be looking at... When they experience some sort of trigger, uh, maybe a sight or a sound, they have a psychological um, uh, uh, experience, so maybe they have the, the anxiety, that again, that fear might come up. They may also have a physiological response. Uh, for those of you who have taken psychology um, and you've heard of that fight-or-flight response, that is triggered at the, that the, um, the sight or sound or the memory of the event. Um, so those just are just a few examples of uh, re-experiencing. And then we can look at uh, an avoidance or a psychological numbing. So they are trying to perhaps forget what it is that they experience. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to experience those emotions again. Uh, people, events, activities that are associated with that trauma of, they want to try to avoid that. They may try to, uh, they might not try, but they may forget um, important aspects of that trauma. Um, and they may just kind of separate themselves or distance themselves from uh, their normal activities. So those are some examples of uh, the av- the avoidance or, or the numbing that we see. And then finally we see um, symptoms like uh, problems with sleeping, um, hypervigilance, again, that flight or fight response is kind of always on, kind of always ready or prepared for something um, to happen. Uh, we may be having uh, difficulty with concentrating. And uh, th- so those are some of the uh, hyper arousal type of symptoms that we see. And then the last two things that I want to point out about PTSD is, one, the the duration of the symptoms. To be diagnosed with PTSD, we have to meet um, several criteria for at least a month. Okay, for a month period of time, we have to see these symptoms before we can give that diagnosis. And then with most of the diagnoses within um, the the DSM, uh, the the symptoms have to be causing the person distress in their life, and not just in one area of their life, but when they go to, in, in the case of students, school, work, home life, building friendships or maintaining friendships, it's interfering with multiple aspects of their life and um, that is something that we're going to look for in the diagnosis.
2: The one thing I wanted to mention, and thank you for your answer, that was was, uh, really informative. Um, If somebody doesn't experience PTSD? I guess what I'm thinking as I'm hearing you talk is that this is a pretty normal reaction to a really extreme stressor. So the abnormality here is going to be the stressor, not necessarily the reaction. Because if somebody gets sexually assaulted, physically assaulted, their life is threatened, you'd expect they're going to have some type of reaction from it.
3: Right. Um, with PTSD, or I guess just with the trauma, we can all experience a trauma and we're all going to have a reaction to that trauma, that experience. But it, like what Nick is saying, uh, that our, the reaction to it is going to um, have an impact on how we experience it, and the extent to, of, of, of the the extent to how we're dealing with it. how long how long does that um, reaction last? Right. So. That re-experiencing. Some people may experience what they what, what the event, but it may not be ongoing or long lasting. Um, so I have read that there's some some people who are struggling with um, whether or not we c- should consider the trauma the actual part of the diagnosis. That, that's and true. I don't want to go too far into that, but um, they're re- they're revising the DSM, and that's one of the concerns that they have is that we're focusing too much on the trauma. We should focus more on the symptoms. So. Um,
2: it no, depends true. on
3: who we're talking to in regards to how important that trauma is.
2: And the symptoms, how long they last, too. If those symptoms that you talked about last for less than a month, you're looking at acute stress reaction. If they last for more than a month, then that gets changed to PTSD. Uh, but uh, to dovetail on what we're talking about here, so you've got two people who experience the same trauma. One person gets PTSD or has the symptoms. Another person does not get those symptoms. Uh, how would we explain that type of difference?
3: That to me is is a is an interesting question. It's a oh. question that comes up a lot, but it is tough because there's lots of varying opinions about it. Um, some people will argue that or or advocate that there that people have a biological vulnerability to PTSD. So there's something already they they're born with something. Um, the brain chemistry is going to influence their response to a trauma. So we could look at look at it from a biological standpoint. Um, I read an example of if a mother is going through, um, she's um, during pregnancy and she's going through a trauma, that that can influence brain development in the child. And influence how, when the child is born, how they're going to experience trauma when they are born. Um, and you know, we could go into more detail on that, but I won't. We could also look at um, the response to the trauma. Uh, I tend to lean towards a, a cognitive perspective in how we perceive and interpret things. So, um, Dr. Williamson and I could go through the same trauma, but she has more of a uh, I'm gonna get through it i'm gonna I'm going to um, learn from this experience and then my perspective is when I think about it, all of my senses are involved I'm very emotionally charged when I think about what I went through um, We could also look at you know how she perceives how safe she was or how she dealt with um, the the actual instance of being in that trauma she she handled it the best that she could and she feels good about it. I didn't handle it very well. I just broke down and You know, I start looking negatively at myself because I didn't handle the situation the way I perhaps wanted to. Um, So timing of it also might play a part. Previous trauma is also something that they look at for people who have um, PTSD or are exposed to a trauma. So if I had um, trauma as a child, or I've had multiple traumas in my life. That could influence or increase my risk of um, uh, being diagnosed with PTSD. Coping strategies um, that the person has just in general. Um, there's actually something called post-traumatic growth that people go through um, a trauma and actually grow from it, change from it, excel, you know, they, they learn from it. They're motivated to, um, you know, make changes in their life or, or you know, I lived I'm going to live my life to the fullest now because I went through this trauma. So um, coping strategies, how well do people reach out um, when they do go through something? Um, Do they have a good social support? Do they have people in their lives that are negative and aren't helping them, aren't supporting them? So um, coping strategies are important as well. Um, Previous personal and family history of mental illness could also be a risk factor. Uh, We could be looking at a lot of different things that could influence what – whether or not someone um, is diagnosed with PTSD or yeah,
2: not, a lot of things you got to look at, and I suppose during a diagnostic interview, a lot of those things might come up if a person goes and gets treated. Um, uh, and, and I'm wondering if someone on the panel, uh, Erica, maybe yourself or, or, or Matthew, uh, give us a, a brief snippet on where did this diagnosis originate from? Where did it come from? Is it a new term? Is it you know has it always been around?
1: Um.
3: I want to take it from like the veteran perspective.
4: Yeah, uh, a lot of times they they kind of equate the the beginnings of this idea of what PTSD started with or what it represented was was a lot of it came from wars and things like that. They used to call call it like shell shock, um, traumatic war neurosis. They actually, when the first DSM came out, they didn't actually have PTSD and they had uh, gross. Uh, gross stress reaction, and it was a, a lot of different terms. And it, it wasn't just, you know, part of that, when the first DSM came out, it was um, just after World War II um, in the 1950s that this was going on, and they had it. Uh, but it, it was started a long time before that. People saw this shell shock or this uh, reaction to war, this war fatigue um, in wars before that, you know, World War I. Um, and they actually have histories of it going back, like, uh, I, I think I read somewhere that it, in some Greek history, they talked about the fatigue of of soldiers coming back from war and kind of what they were dealing with so a lot of it started from the war that 's kind of where we started noticing it more because we had so many people there were so many people who came back and had these these different reactions, these negative um, feelings towards what they experienced and it was you know really a man made created event the war thing but um, that 's not to say that it's only people who have served or only soldiers who experienced this. So um, it kind of started on that end. And then, I don't know, Erica, if you want to talk about
3: Yeah, with the the DSM, like uh, Matt said, uh, the first one, uh, they called it a gross stress reaction. Uh, The second time that the DSM was revised, they actually took it out. So there wasn't a direct diagnosis for PTSD or what would be PTSD. Um, they just kind of lumped it in with just situational factors. And uh, something that I read was interesting, that they said it could be because at that time that the DSM was revised, mm-hmm. there was no war. There, there We really weren't dealing with people who are prevalent with these symptoms. Uh, Third time around 1980, when DSM 3 came out, uh, they were dealing with the after effect of uh, the Vietnam War. We're seeing a lot of people, because there wasn't a diagnosis in, um, in between there, were the walking wounded, people who needed help and weren't getting the help because we didn't really know where to classify them. So, PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder, um, was created in 1980. So, when you think about it, it's a relatively new diagnosis. We haven't been dealing with it for a long time. Uh, and uh, it's been pretty much PTSD that what they do now, they've revised the DSM um, twice or one and a half. Um, time since since 1980, um, PTSD has remained, but there is that issue, as I mentioned before, about what do we consider a trauma right. and how much emphasis should we place on it. In 1980, the, the type of trauma had to be something outside of our ordinary experience, our everyday experience. Right. When they revised it um, for the fourth time, some people argue that it's a little bit general now, that we don't have a specific, here's what trauma is, Uh, and things that might be more of a normal reaction or a normal experience can now become PTSD if you perceive um, an injury to yourself, um, if you respond with fear, um, horror, dread, anxiety. And some people aren't comfortable with that because we may see an increase in in, in a diagnosis of PTSD. They're revising the DSM now, and um, there are going to be some changes. Um, They're not, I don't know if we're 100% sure what those changes are going to be, but I do know that they're looking at that aspect of what's a trauma. And... um, I did look up to see if I could find out what are they changing. They may take out that idea of you have to respond with a certain emotion. Um, there's still that trauma that has to happen, but they're also going to narrow what a trauma is. You can't just necessarily hear that um, some person off the street or you listen to something on the news and all of a sudden that had an impact on you because you perceive trauma. They're going to take that out. Currently, you could potentially... D- be diagnosed with PTSD because you saw something on TV Um, they want to scale that back and say it has to happen to you or someone who's close to you.
2: That's true we'll we'll see about the major changes that the DSM-5 is going to be bringing us up uh, bringing up here and uh, Matt I know we're talking about uh, we're we're talking about veterans and you have to imagine this has been happening ever since the Civil War time but we you know just recently started categorizing it. And uh, uh, and, and, and I, I'd like to ask uh, for anybody in the audience that doesn't know that we have a counseling center, we have a counseling center here on campus. And if you could tell us where, where the counseling center is.
4: Sure. Uh, the counseling center is located in S-202. The S building is the one with the big clock on it, um, and we're on the second floor. Um, It's right across from Academic Advising, so if you ever go see an academic advisor, we're right across the hall. Um, Included in our office is the Job Resource Center, but we do uh, all types of counseling. We do the career counseling, um, we do academic counseling, so if you're struggling in classes, or you need help um, getting connected with resources, we can do that, but we also do personal counseling. We do short-term personal counseling to help um, students either um, deal with some things pretty quickly that are coming up for them that are getting in the way of their academics um, or if it's a long-term thing. And um, we do, we have had students who uh, have presented that have been dealing with PTSD um, and usually we like to connect them with uh, an outside resource in the community, something that's going to be beneficial for them with with. Um, with people who are experts in that, like either with EMDR, which I know somebody's going to talk about, and um, you know, uh, prolonged exposure therapy, things like that, that will be really beneficial for them. True.
2: Now I know you've probably worked with some of the veterans that we have here on campus, and and I'd like to and I'd like to ask you wh- why does it seem like so many veterans do end up developing PTSD? Because we're looking at thir- you know, if you're a veteran, you're you're 30 percent more right. likely to get it than, than the average individual. But uh, if you could speak to that,
4: yeah, um, you. you know, we we talked about how. This idea of PTSD or, uh, you know, traumatic stress related from war has been really closely linked with uh, people fighting soldiers, uh, veterans, and that sort of thing. And I think it's really prominent kind of now because, you know, everything that's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, with Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, um, and Operation New Dawn, some of those things are happening right now. So we we hear stories about veterans who are going over there and uh, are coming back with PTSD or develop PTSD at some point. We actually even, you know, it's even um, plausible for people who fought in Vietnam to... Be okay or seemingly okay, and then um, something triggers it, and the PTSD just presents itself, you know, later in life. Um, I actually had a, a veteran student who was in my office who came back uh, six years after he returned from um, Iraq. Something triggered it, and uh, it, it was presented. So um, it is possible. We see it a lot of times because, really, when you think about it, and um, I was in a training over the summer that uh, kind of addressed this that. of the soldiers going to uh, Iraq or Afghanistan or to fight, 100% have the possibility of developing PTSD uh, because they are going to be put in these positions where they're going to see trauma. They're going to experience some events. They're going to experience, you know, um, buddies of theirs either dying or getting injured. They themselves are going to get injured, um, and it's really a fact of war. They actually tell soldiers, before you go over there, um, before... They, they start, they actually go over with them and say, you know, death and injury are going to happen. It's not they might happen or it could happen. It's going to happen. Um, so they want to kind of prepare soldiers as much as possible, but, you know, still it doesn't really kind of prepare you for when you're in that situation, when you're in that moment and kind of what's going to happen. So we see this, uh, a lot of this idea of PTSD and veterans having PTSD because, you know, they're exposed to it. It's something that's you know a real possibility a real um a reality
2: for them and also that's true a friend of mine who who served in uh in afghanistan came back and and i talked to him about this and and he says you know one of the ways that i survived out there was by being on guard all the time and being on guard served me really well because it kept me alive from different situations i just can't turn that off now he says i'm back here and I hear noises, I hear things that remind me, and it takes me right back to where i was and uh, And I have to tell my teachers, you know I'm sorry that I had to step out, and this is what's going on with me and so uh, thankfully, he's getting treatment yeah. but but when he explained it like that that he had to learn to be on guard to keep himself alive, and that guard just continues to be up. it's going to be hard to kind of unlearn some yeah. of that,
4: yeah. And there's triggers. I mean, really, there's a lot of different triggers that are present um, in any everyday life for, for veterans. You know, um, being in a crowded place uh, can cause some of that. Driving down the road, you know, if you there's some videos that uh, I saw in this training and that are posted online of of people driving through Baghdad. Um, you know, like a Humvee just going through Baghdad and all these cars and all the possibilities and them just being on guard all the time. You know, so it's a it's a reality um, for a lot of our veterans, and luckily, other than the counseling um, office here, veterans who are dealing with any kind of injury or any kind of stress or even PTSD, um, you know, another great resource for them here at Moraine is the Center for Disability Services where they can get accommodations. Like you said, your friend would step out of class, you know, talking to instructors about that and being able to be aware, having them be aware of that um, and getting some of those accommodations from the Center for Disability Services can be beneficial
2: too is there a difference uh, and, and we may have already covered this and you tell me and you can you tell us uh, if ptsd for veterans is, is different than for civilians the
4: the simple answer is no it's not the the idea is that again there was this idea that maybe ptsd was a veteran related thing and it was much more so and it's just because they have the the reality the possibility of experiencing that but um, it's pretty much the same the the difference really might be uh, more cultural than anything. You know uh, how veterans um, want to feel or don't want to appear weak. Um, how how they're afraid of what kind of stigma might come along with that if they do acknowledge this or if they do tell somebody about it. So there's that aspect, but really it's it's the same. You know as uh, opposed to maybe a civilian who's experiencing it or somebody who experiences trauma from, say, a natural disaster or, uh, you know, sexual assault or physical assault. Uh, PTSD is, is really a, a diagnosis that can go across all that. So, so,
2: so what you're saying is that, let's say, hypothetically, the, 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 the folks in New York or on the East Coast that have experienced the loss of their houses, the loss of their lives, yeah. people, loved ones, Th- their trauma is going to be similar. They're, they're going to have similar symptoms. Mm-hmm. It's just that veterans tend to be exposed to more trauma.
4: Right. The veterans, it's, it's, it's there. You know. Um, but, yeah, the, I was talking to Terry before this, you know, with Hurricane Sandy. Um, I had heard of a story, a really sad story, of a family trying to get away, and a branch fell on the parents and killed the parents right there. And, you know, that's, PTSD is really a real possibility for those children because they experienced that traumatic event.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. William... D- Professor Williamson, um, we know that ethnicity and culture can play a role in PTSD, and, uh, and and you may have had some experience treating individuals with PTSD in your past, so we might ask you to take the lead on this one, but uh, what what ethnocentric or ethnocultural issues uh, do we encounter in regard to PTSD?
5: Okay. Um, I, I guess... I'd like to look at it from a Western perspective. So in our culture, we tend to think that pain is bad. And pain is something that should be avoided and gotten rid of as soon as possible. I mean, as soon as you get a headache or something, pop an Advil. You know, I mean, we, we're, we're not very tolerant of pain in, in the culture. And so um, there's this sense that we should avoid pain. And part of the symptom of PTSD is this, is this avoidance. And in a lot of ways, it's socially sanctioned. So we, we agree that people shouldn't be in pain for very long. And we kind of pathologize it and say, if, if you are in pain for a long time, what's wrong with you, rather than looking at it as, you know, human suffering is just part of the condition that we are all dealt, and we have to kind of find a way to, to fit it into our culture. So, um, each culture has ways that they work out distress, and for the most part, our culture says we should suppress it. And that's part of the issue then that comes up with PTSD, is many people will uh, have a trauma, particularly early in life, and not be able to work through it and, and and process it. They just hold that in, and that becomes a problem later on when there's... Um, A later trauma, like, for instance, with a veteran, um, something called complex PTSD. So you have somebody who had something happen early on and they never worked through it, and then later on they're exposed to another trauma, and it makes them more vulnerable to to react to that. The other thing we do in this culture is say, it's in the past. Get over it. Move on. You know, so... And and this idea that if something's in the past, it shouldn't be looked at, it shouldn't be talked about, it really shouldn't be important anymore is a problem for people who have PTSD because they they make themselves think that something's wrong with them rather than looking at the fact that, well, maybe there's something wrong with the culture (laughs) that's telling me this. The other piece... um, is, has to do with the way men and women and, and different groups are valued in society. So for men, um, there's, there tends to be a need to suppress emotions. And so, again, in our culture, like Matt was saying, if, God, if men are showing these symptoms, then are they considered weak? What's wrong with them? There's a problem, and, and they, should be, um, they should be able to just pull it together kind of thing. And the other issue then becomes that um, it gives us the impression that men are doing better when they really aren't. And so it might take longer to identify. For women, on the other hand, um, there are twice as many women who have PTSD as men. So women are more vulnerable to this. They're at increased risk for trauma across the lifespan. And the good thing about women is that they're taught to process. So in our culture, women are allowed to cry. Women are allowed to be reactive. And that's that's a little bit more helpful for them in the sense that it's easier to work through. So we we need to work through our traumas. We need to cry. We need to scream. We need to re-experience it with safe, supportive people if we're going to be able to work through the trauma. And culturally, again, that kind of goes against with what we're taught and what we believe. So... There's this conundrum that we have to deal with.
2: Awesome. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot, of, a lot of factors to look at when, when you talk about this. And, and, and you're talking about the rigid male socialization that could play a role in, in, in how it gets treated how, and, and, and if somebody gets treated. I don't, the good news is that two-thirds of people who have PTSD eventually do get treated for it. They don't go right away. They don't go right away. And and just like anything, you would imagine once things start getting bad, once things start to interfere with your life, that's when people get treated. However, two-thirds of people do get treated for it. And and in treatment, and we might talk about what some of those treatments are, but what kind of issues do do come up in treatment for people with PTSD?
5: Okay. um, I'm just going to talk about some personal experiences that I've had um, working with people who have survived trauma, trauma survivors that I've worked with over the last um, eight years or so. And some of the things that tend to come up, um, one of the big things is that trying to move past the idea that this is something that was done to you. So somehow you're a victim. And so moving past that and, and helping the person to um, become empowered and feel in control. That's one of the the biggies. The other one is educating the person about um, the reactions and letting them know they are not crazy. They are not losing it. There's not something wrong with them, that this is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation that most people would have difficulty coping with. This isn't a problem with you. And so trying to help them not to internalize that um, and let them know that even the strangest behavior – is an attempt to problem solve. When people are suffering, when people are in pain, they do what they can to cope. And some of those coping mechanisms may look bizarre and strange and, and be um, what we consider somewhat malfunctional, but they, they're they doing it to try to work through whatever it is they're going through. Um, the third thing is helping them change the relationship to the memory. So the memories can be horribly painful to experience, but trying to help them to look at it as um, a way, something that they can be more neutral about, that they can um, grow. I think Erica talked about uh, post-traumatic growth, that that they can use this to grow. Um, I was watching uh, Half the Sky, if you guys have seen it earlier this week, and um, it's about, uh, a lot of it has to do with sex trafficking of women. And one of the, the women who had been sold to a brothel when she was nine um, was rescued when she was about 14. And um, her parents wouldn't take her back because she was, had shamed the family by, by being sold to this brothel. So there's very interesting cultural aspects to it. But anyway, um, what she chose to do was go in and rescue other girls from these brothels. So she was able to take... Her horrible trauma history and the pain that she experienced, and turn it into something meaningful, turning, in, it, turning it into something that was going to help other people. And that's also one way to help people move through it. Um, the couple other, or one other thing, um, is helping people to come up with self-soothing behaviors. A lot of times, when people are traumatized they they'll do anything to reduce the tension that they're experiencing, so they might be using substances, drinking alcohol, um, overeating, sleeping too much whatever whatever they're doing to avoid th- those avoidance behaviors um, try to help people to figure out some better ways to cope with whatever they're experiencing at the moment, those really painful Emotions that they're feeling that that they might feel overwhelmed by. They might say, it, "It will kill me to tell this story to you. I cannot do it. I can't go through that." But um, what they have to understand is they can, but it's got to be slow. It's got to be controlled. It's got to be gently titrated, and and also to teach them how to soothe themselves as they're as they're going through this. And so, meditation, breathing exercises. Um, Relaxation. um, There's actually a CD that a lot of people uh, that I've worked with use. Um, The lady's name is Belle Ruth, Naperstack, and she has some really great CDs that are very soothing and calming and that people can use to help them develop this ability to to engage that parasympathetic response, which is what we need people to, to be in so that they can move through it.
2: Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, I, I know that some of the traditional ways that PTSD gets treated. Uh, should somebody choose to take medications through a psychiatrist, they could be on anti-anxiety medications to help suppress some of the anxiety. Um, fa- uh, it wouldn't. It, uh, it would be common to be in family therapy to help the family learn coping strategies to to cope with the individual and uh, and also to cope with some of the trauma. Group therapy is also helpful. You might have uh, a lot of people who are experiencing PTSD being group therapy, too. One of the most common treatments is exposure therapy, where you take the client through the experience. You have them talk. They talk themselves through it. They might start experiencing some of the trauma again. And then you couple that with behavioral, uh, with relaxation therapy, where you help somebody breathe. And name you had just talked about that, where you kind of help the, the individual with some self-soothing exercises as they kind of go back through the experience, and, and according to research, that tends to be one of the most helpful techniques as well. Um, and, and we're going to get to some non-traditional ways too. And I, I wanted to to turn it over to Terry uh, for uh, a bit here. I know naturally PTSD doesn't just affect the person; it affects the family, the people around us. And and Terry, I'd like to ask you if you, and I know you work in a counseling center and, and you've seen a lot of uh, our students who might be experiencing these things. So, uh, in your experience, how how does PTSD affect the family or loved ones?
5: Well, first,
6: um, it's important to understand that the lo- loved ones' behavior does not indicate their true feelings. Is this, is this on? Sorry, on. No? you got to pull the mic a little oh, closer. I'm sorry, okay. Talking. Okay. There we go. Thank you. Um, yeah. And to understand that it does affect people along the way, the family members, the loved ones. Um, they may not understand of what the person is going through. As we discuss some of the physical reactions that the person is going through, they may feel jumpy. They may feel um, jittery um, just based on some of the um, the responses, the uh, the physical responses. So, for example, with children, children um, may not understand that if a parent has PTSD. They may question what's going on and why is my mom or dad reacting the way they are? Don't they love me? Um, It's important to understand that it is okay to share the information with your children, age appropriately, and not going into too much detail. The kids, may be able to understand it much more so, more so than you can think. So say for a five-year-old, you wouldn't go into graphic detail, of course, to discuss the information. But what you may want to do is explain what is going on, that daddy's not feeling very well right now. There was something that occurred and made him really scared. Um, Kids do understand these things. Um, if, If it's not discussed, what happens is a lot of times kids internalize that. And there has been some, it's very rare, but there's some uh, secondary traumatization on that where kids can start reacting, have behavioral problems themselves, also depression and anxiety disorders. Again, it's not very common, but kids can express this. Um, Loved ones can feel um, that they've been alienated. They may feel that the person that they once loved, uh, the joyous times that they had, the person's not reacting the way they should be any longer. Um, the intimacy is no longer there because the person with PTSD may be depressed, obviously, and um, kind of hold back. And this can be very difficult. What's important to understand is really as a person, uh, as a supportive uh, person with somebody with PTSD, is to understand what are some of the symptoms they may uh, experience and really as... um, Nick had stated, family therapy is extremely important if you can get through something like that, and couples therapy. Individual therapy should be dealt with, uh, with the individual with PTSD, but it's important to include the family members, too, to kind of understand, how do we work as a family system or couples, um, because it does affect the person greatly, the people around them.
2: Awesome. Thank you. Um, is anybody here taking a Psych 205 class, an abnormal psych class? Okay, a lot of you guys are. Wonderful. Probably with Dr. Williamson. <laughs> In your textbook, your textbook is going to say that the behavioral treatment, exposure treatment, is probably the most common treatment for this. Um and and, and we may ask Terry if, if if she can to share with us what are some non traditional ways to treat PTSD.
6: Okay. Um Actually, looking this up, I, I've always been into alternative medicine myself. And looking up, I have seen the Veterans Affairs is also very much on board with this treatment. So it's great news to hear. Uh, some ways that they've been utilizing, or uh, some things have been herbal therapies. Um, but other ways that they've really, u- uh, other things that they've used is acupuncture. Uh, are you familiar with acupuncture? Okay. So it can reduce a lot of the stress and the anxiety symptoms. Um, and kind of make them more open up to um, cognitive behavioral therapy or talk therapy. Um, It's not um, solely based on its own. Obviously we want both, but the symptoms, they show the greater amount of people that do have this. I believe it was my, let's see, I think it was about 90% start showing um, uh, that they're alleviated from some of the PTSD symptoms. Other types of therapies would include biofeedback, which is an EEG, um, and it pretty much helps uh, people. It's been known to help a lot of the veterans uh, for total recovery. It's an EEG machine, and by listening to the kind and amount of brainwaves produced. So that's something that's very effective for uh, people with PTSD. Other ones include non-traditional would be, uh, for example, what uh, was mentioned, um, relaxation therapy. And that can come in many different forms. It can be yoga. Uh, we can use mindfulness as uh, another thing. And also dance and art therapy. Uh, they did do a study on veterans back in, I believe, in 2008 who have done uh, art therapy, and they were drawing out how they felt, and they felt much more relief. In fact, I believe it was like 70% success rate on that. So um, that's another form. By reducing the stress hormone cortisol, um, that is something that is what the key role here for these alternative therapies. Once you reduce that, is their aim, okay? Um, Another is uh, hypnosis. There's a 70% success rate with hypnosis. This does not get rid of the symptoms, but just help uh, the the uh, therapist or physician, help the person get their defenses down to get through and dig down deeper into help healing them. Okay. Uh, there's also healing touch. I don't know if you're familiar with mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. You've heard of that. Mm-hmm. And very common. I Actually, I'm a level 2 uh, Reiki. Awesome. <laughs> so uh, what it is is... Um, it may sound like uh, hocus-pocus, but it does work. It's just no, it's working not, with it. Not. Yeah, it's not at all. It's very good energy work with people, and they've, we've been utilizing this even in hospitals. Along with that is animal therapy. And how many of you can be depressed if you're holding your animal? You know. That It can kind of help to pet that animal, and they're showing that, again, the cortisol levels go down when they're petting uh, a cat or, say, a dog. Again, this isn't the end all. This should be coupled with talk therapy, but it can help greatly alleviate the symptoms. Um, and that's about it. There's, I'm, I'm sure there's many, many, many more that I have yet to touch upon but uh, that's some of them.
2: I think I think it's nice to know that people have a lot of different options in mm-hmm. getting treatment. I mean, the traditional ones work great. But yeah. I mean, what if uh, the research? I was reading another piece of research just this week that says that uh, as positive as the treatment can be, so we have two thirds of people that go to treatment, mm-hmm. and we've established that. To, so there's a third of people that don't get any treatment. Of the of the two thirds, the sixty six percent of people that get treated. A third of them don't respond to it, the traditional treatment. So, so these options that you're sharing here mm-hmm. might work better for that population that doesn't respond to the average treatment.
6: Yes, I agree. And, and like I said, the Department of Defense has looked into this, and they have funded it. So if you know that there, this is a true thing, it used to be looked at as, um, oh, quackery, but it is not, no longer, thank goodness. I think in conjunction with traditional therapies, it's an excellent way to combat this.
2: Absolutely. Well, well. Thank you for for all the insights that you have all shared. Is, is I wanted to give uh, everyone on the panel a, an opportunity to, if, if, unless there's anything else that that you wanted to share that came up, any any thoughts that were sparked during our talk here, and 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 if not, um, I, I wanted to turn it over to the audience. And I'm going to give them a few minutes too to maybe pose a question or two. But it, was there anything that any of the panelists wanted to share in addition? And that's cool. You know.
6: Um, if I may, yeah, this please, PTSD. please, I wanted um, to give you something that a little bit more revealing. I wanted to share that I am also a survivor of PTSD. So it's something that I, uh, as the empowerment, uh, is something that I had seen and help others who went through some sort of trauma. I feel very empowered to say so that I'm on the other end. But do you ever get over it? I don't know. <laughs> do you suppress some of the things and work through it? Definitely. But I think it's important to know that the faces is that there is help. Um, as long as you ask for it and get it and are open to receiving it, you can live a wonderful, fulfilling life. I am married with three kids, very happily, and uh, do very well in life. So that's something that those of you that may have suffered some sort of trauma, don't give up. Get the help that is needed. It's really important to understand that. And be a survivor.
2: Terry, thank you for sharing that, and and we're happy that you're here. And you give you give. I I think I can speak for everybody here. You give a lot of us inspiration. Thank you. I'd I'd like to take a minute. I'd like to give the audience a minute to to think about a question that you'd like to ask our panel. So I'll, I'll come back to everybody in about a minute. But I want to give you a minute to process. And to think of something that you may want to ask. And we know people have, does anybody have class at 12? 12-15, okay, so we can still have you. Filter.
6: Nick, can I mention one thing? I yeah, completely no, please, forgot that please, my wonderful please. colleague reminded me over here, EMDR is another therapy, I can't believe I forgot that, which is dealing with rapid eye movement. Uh, very excellent therapy, again, an alternative. Um, so if you wonder about it, look up EMDR. Again, it helps victims. It's, uh, it's mostly for travi- uh, trauma victims, if I'm correct. So. Thank you, Linda.
2: <laughs> you guys have about another 30 seconds. <laughs> but I'll probably head towards the middle, and if anybody would like to ask a question, I'd like to bring the microphone to you. And I'll probably hold your mic for you if that's okay. But please, please, uh, for anybody on the panel. Um if you're coming across someone who has PTSD symptoms, what are those symptoms that you should look for in order to understand that they're going through an episode of PTSD?
3: Missed the last half of that question.
2: <laughs> if you come across a person who mm-hmm. perhaps may have PTSD and they're going through an episode, what are some symptoms that a person. What are some symptoms? Yeah. So, we're asking, what are some symptoms
5: like? Like, how would we recognize that in somebody who's going through it? Good question. So, how would we recognize it? Okay. Um, basically, the, the, the three big ones you can look for is: Are they engaging in avoidance behaviors? So, are they avoiding um, things? Are they hyper aroused? Are they really anxious, jumpy? Um, And finally, are they having reliving symptoms? Are they having flashbacks? Are they unable to kind of stay present um, in whatever they're doing? Are they dissociating, you know, kind of spacing out, things like that? Those are the the big three, I guess. Does that help? (laughs) Okay.
2: And that's pretty accurate to the things that I had seen, too. I mean, I've had uh, several... Veterans in my class when we bring this topic up or we talk about trauma Especially in the psych 205 class the abnormal class uh, Where where some of those traumas may have may have arisen from I've noticed those exact same things Students leave class they avoid the discussion or you can see they start emotionally start uh, their 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 brain starts activating back in attack mode and you can see them starting to get tensed up again <coughs> So that's how you might see those things
3: What advice would you give to a sexual assault survivor who seems to be doing better but as the anniversary of the event is drawing near or an anniversary of the trigger
6: is drawing near?
2: Good question. Thank you.
6: Okay. Well, I think first is um, making sure that you do seek assistance uh, is imperative, right? That's support a support group. We have great support groups in the area um, because it can be difficult during that time. Surrounding yourselves with loved ones is important uh, as well because the trauma can be reoccurring. And they may feel the person may feel that. Um, they're reliving the, everything. So when you have that support system, for example, when people come to see us, a lot of times we do refer them out to receive ongoing treatment, and it's important to continue on if the person's still experiencing the trauma. Anybody else want to add anything?
5: Yeah. Um, the other thing sometimes we do is if, if, if people, and a lot of people do have symptoms around anniversaries of trauma, that's really common, first of all, so that is not abnormal. Um, A lot of times to set up a ritual around that time is important that is empowering. So it might be that you go and plant a tree in the name of other survivors or you let go of a balloon somewhere to, to, you know, show that um, the individual is free from whatever's happened to them so that there's some symbolic way that you can change, again, turn, turn around that day so it's not a time of horror and an increase in symptoms and a time when people, you know, have to go hide in their room for three days. But it becomes a time where they use it to show that they're a survivor, that they're empowered again and that if they've moved past it. So with a therapist, again, like Terry was saying, having some help to come up with something that can help the individual through that time is, is important.
2: So like activating the coping strategies that help, them process through the issue. Uh, I know one of the clients that I had treated many years ago, uh, and to answer your question too, and I want to dovetail into the the advice that you guys are giving is the exact advice that we would give any client. Uh, I I had a client who had suffered a sexual assault, and uh, she felt comforting, or she felt comfort in being around safe people around that time. So I would say that those three or four days surrounding that anniversary, she was around safe people, people she trusted, loved ones, family members, and uh, was able to get a lot of support from them. And that was her coping mechanism, and, and it worked really well for her. I think it's also important
4: that if you're getting help for something and you start to just feel better one day, not to just... Say okay, I'm I'm done. I'm fine. Everything is good now. You know, to so be aware of the fact that it is a process, and there are going to be times where yes, you do feel better, and then there might be times that you know you don't feel as good, and you're like, well, something's wrong because it didn't work. But you know, just saying I I do need the help, recognizing that yes, the help is important, and making sure that that you are in this process of recovery, and that you are getting the help you needed for it. So don't really what I'm saying is don't just quit just because one day you feel suddenly better and you think that you, you don't need anything anymore, you know, really kind of process that and, and if you're working with a therapist, process that with a the therapist and really kind of go through that um, and that way you, you can be on the same page, the two of you, and you can um, figure out further treatment plans and further treatment goals.
2: And, and everyone makes a great point. Um, these things are going to come up from time to time and we should expect them to and that's the nature of how the syndrome takes, takes effect. Do we have any other questions in the audience? I'd like to get to them. Yes, please. Come on up. If, avo- if avoidance is uh, one of the main symptoms, and we talked about today about how to identify and uh, recognize in some, some ways treat, how do you motivate someone that you've uh, seen exhibit these symptoms to get the help if they're inclined to avoid it? Mm-hmm. That's a great
6: question.
5: Let's think of well, it's like, I, I guess, you know, like, I hate to answer it with a joke, but I'm going to try to do that. Um, you know, it's like the old question, how many therapists does it take to change the light bulb? Well, only one, but the light bulb has to really want to change. I mean, that's kind of the, I know it's a cheesy joke, I'm sorry, but. Classic, but, classic. But, but it's, it's just this idea that we really As much as we love people and we want to help them, there's only so much we can do. And I think your continual encouragement and support um, of a friend or family member is what's important, to continue to say, hey, you know, I, I understand you're in pain and there's some really great help out here for you. And just continuing to kind of provide that is the best we can do as people. You know, we can't drag somebody necessarily into therapy.
2: That's a tough one. So what, you're, what we're asking here is, is kind of having the person exposing it to them when they don't want it to be exposed to them, right? So someone's avoiding the issue. They don't want to talk about it, but you're bringing it to them. And, and I don't know if there's an easy answer for that. Uh, I've, I've had clients who are not ready to talk about it, and I have to be okay with that. At some point, we're going to have to, but uh, if somebody doesn't want to, we certainly don't want to cause them more trauma. But uh, I, I don't know if it's fair to say if their avoidance works for them or if it's one of the ways that they cope, should we let them? Should we let them avoid? Should we let them not talk about it? I guess when they're ready, they're going to.
3: As a, I'm not speaking as a clinician, but as a friend, um, they're 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 re-experiencing anyway. They they are having they they have to have at least one symptom of re-experiencing the trauma. So as a friend, I would be like, y- you're experiencing it anyway. Avoiding it. You're trying, but you're still having some sort of re-experiencing. So it might be good to talk to someone and walk through that re-experiencing rather than being alone, rather than waking up in the middle of the night distressed. So coming from it, I would try coming from that point of view that you're you're already experiencing it. You're already going through it. Mm -hmm. Go through it with someone who can help you through it rather than doing it alone. And try avoiding it someone can help you get through it so that it doesn't have the same, um, uh, again, emotional charge to it as it does now because you've you've worked through it with someone.
1: So if I can uh, address that a little bit, too. Um, We all have ambivalent feelings about change, and particularly if something's been really traumatic, right? And and you're right, avoidance is a great coping mechanism mechanism for it. But it's kind of like the ambivalence. If you press down on one, the other comp pops up. So, if you confront too much, they're going to become more avoidant. So, part of what we were talking about, there's something called motivational interviewing, Mm -hmm. which really has to do with people that are really... Ambivalent, and it's really hard to change, can have to do with addictions, things like that. So part of it is just being as empathic, compassionate as you can, not pushing down on the need to change, but understanding the reason for the coping mechanism. Um, people get anxious about change if there's a threat. So why would somebody want to deal with, you know, a rethinking of the trauma, right? So being a friend and just creating a really safe place for somebody to feel whatever they're feeling, that it's not going to create a threat or risk of feeling those feelings is helpful. So does that help? Mm -hmm. And then... Seek a professional. <laughs> yes. Um, there's a book called Motivational Interviewing by Muller and Rodnick that if any of you wanted to get access to, kind of gives some of these strategies that um, helps you to um, handle ambivalence. Thank
2: you. Uh, we have Connie, uh, Professor Connie Strand in our, in our audience as well who wanted to share some insights
5: As a former therapist, I saw a lot of police officers in my office with PTSD. Again, that fight or flight, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. And uh, so a lot of police officers uh, suffer from this also. And then now I do a lot of grief work. And as you're describing PST, I see this in people in my groups just going through the death of a loved one. didn't have to be traumatic. You know, it could have been their husband that died of cancer. Um, They still go through a lot of these same symptoms. And uh, you know why I run a support group for grief. So you can see this too, in just people with uh, normal grief reactions also.
2: There's a really good question that came up from our audience. Uh, and, and the question is, are there any genetic are there any genetic or physiological bodily factors that would put someone at a greater oh, I'm sorry, sorry guys Uh, Are there any genetic or physiological factors that would put somebody at a greater predisposition for PTSD? Uh,
5: Just I can briefly talk about some of the neurological factors. So when you have trauma, um, you've got an increased activity in the right hemisphere, decreased activity in the left hemisphere. So what's happening is that the brain is not able to integrate that experience properly, um, which is why... Part of therapy is trying to reintegrate with art therapy and different kinds of therapies to activate the hemisphere. Um, So, we do know that when people undergo early trauma, that you've got some impact on the amygdala, the hippocampus, that some of the brain structures are actually changed due to early trauma. So, if you have trauma early in your life, you might have a brain that's wired a little bit different and therefore later on more reactive to trauma. Um, If you grew up in a home where you had to be very hypervigilant and and very aware all the time, um, you've got a constant sympathetic arousal going. And when when you're on high alert, when that sympathetic arousal is going all the time, um, you're more likely to react to something uh, bigger than it actually is. So you hear a noise, and instead of just a small startle, you, you know, jump out of your seat. I mean, that's an example of something where you're reacting more strongly than uh, somebody who doesn't have those kinds of brain differences. So from a neurological perspective, there, are, there could be some differences.
2: And I think that's an interesting point that you make. That, uh, and I'm sure if you guys have taken uh, even a Psych 101 class, uh, any teacher would have probably talked about nature versus nurture and how one can affect the other. And that's a great example of how your nurture, your environment, can change the brain pattern. Are there any other questions that we can that you'd like to ask? Absolutely. Um, my question is for the person who is a level two Reiki energy worker, therapist, I believe. Um, is there a reason why you pursued that specific type of therapy through energy work rather than the traditional medication, pop the pill, and hope that the antidepressants um, are effective? Um, what's your personal opinion from traditional medication to non traditional
0: medication?
6: Good question. Um, I didn't use it for myself to treat my PTSD, um, but I, what I do see is meditation, um, you know, there is a higher rate of anxiety once you do have PTSD, I think, at least I could speak from my own experience. Um, so working with energy work um, has really empowered me to help others. I've always wanted to be able to help others individuals once I went through something like this so I wanted to find other methods to help them so that's how I got interested in alternative therapies um, and seeing some of it that does work um, so it wasn't necessarily used for myself but um, have I used it on survivors uh, some yes I have but again coupled along with other um, modalities I think is a very important I don't think it's just exclusive to I think you need to bunch of different methods to assist with something like
2: that. <laughs> I think we've got to consider, too, that uh, some people may choose to go the non-traditional route because I'm sure everybody knows this, that medications come with side effects. And the anti-anxieties come with side effects. The antidepressants come with side effects, too. And then there's sometimes there's medications for the side effects. So there's a medication for the medication. So you wonder sometimes if it's if it's beneficial. I mean, ultimately, they are beneficial, uh, but uh, th- that could be one of the reasons of why people choose alternative medications. I know we had a question back here as well that I wanted to get to. And everybody's asked phenomenal questions so far.
1: Hello?
0: Um,
2: can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Say, uh, on my pursuit to becoming a psychologist, uh, say I, d- I don't become successful at doing that, would this type of information still be... Uh, something that I should learn, something that should uh, learn more about, so I could apply it in other careers that I that I'm involved with. So the question is, uh, for anybody that, that didn't hear, um, if you end up not becoming a psychologist, how could this information be helpful to you, either in life or in your or in some other prospective career? Right? Okay.
6: I think about that. Okay. okay, maybe so the sensitivity portion of it, dealing with people every day in life. Of I think that's important. Um, because you may come across a loved one may experience this, so you're better prepared to deal with it. Um, it's important to understand. Remember the first step I did say with uh, people who have a loved one with PTSD is to understand it. It's embarrassing enough, it feels frustrating, you feel ostracized, I know from experience. Um, and it, you almost feel like you're, you're broken. So if someone else, if you can help that person kind of feel like it's okay, um, that's the first step to healing truthfully uh, from what I remember. So um, definitely you can use this in everyday life, with whether it be with coworkers, anybody you come across with.
3: I, I was talking to my office mate yesterday about just mental health issues in general and how sometimes there's a stigma to um, being diagnosed with something. And just being aware that this is not something that we should look at people strangely because they have a diagnosis of PTSD or schizophrenia or whatever it might be, that if we have some knowledge about the disorder, we can be more understanding and, and supportive about it. So um, anything you can learn about I'm going to just cross the board any mental illness. It's good to be informed so that you don't look at someone as if they're a leper or they're something, you know, that they, they're not an, a human being. So uh, any information about mental illness, take Dr. Williamson's Psych 205 class and uh, be more informed. <laughs>
4: It doesn't. It doesn't just help you in a career necessarily. It, it can help you in everyday life. You know, even political issues. There's social policies that might come up that just having an understanding can help you help you be more informed and just be more of a, I guess, really an informed citizen when you think about it. So, absolutely.
2: And and you think about any job that you guys might do. Uh, if you're a manager working somewhere and you have an employee or somebody that's working with you and you recognize that they're going through something, you're going to be more understanding to to their condition. If you're a school teacher, you see students going through stuff, uh, depending on, on, on where you work and what part of the, the city we work in. Uh, I, I think it can only be helpful to be more aware of what could possibly happen to individuals. Do we have any other questions? I know we have about three minutes, so we got one more question and then we're gonna finish up. I know you guys gotta get to your classes, maybe two. Amira, I saw your hand up, so I'm going to ask you, and then we'll get to you, sir, too.
1: Uh, I was wondering what kind, what level of education do you have to obtain to professionally deal with PTSD?
2: So how much school do you
6: need? Lots. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> Typically, to be a, a clinician, you need a master's degree with a um, a license by the state of Illinois. Um, you can go on further, but um, just because you do have your master's and your clinician, it is highly recommended to pretty much specialize, which you, ladies might agree, um, because it is a specialization to work with trauma victims. So it kind of goes beyond that. You do that through continuing education. Um, and we are um, told that we need to take continuing education credits all the time but then you might specialize a little bit more in trauma
4: yeah, there's there's a lot of trainings out there for like emdr and uh prolonged exposure therapy things like that that once you get your license once you get your master's degree and then your license and you're practicing you you get involved in that and that can just help you more
2: so awesome. thank you very much we have one more question this is an excellent question and then we're going to finish up our program here and i'm going to ask this gentleman to, to ask Yes, I was wondering, what should you do yourself if a friend is going through it? Excellent question. So if a friend, someone you know is experiencing something like this, what, what could we do for them?
4: And I think just echoing kind of what some of the panel members said before, just being there as a support is really, really key. You know, you want to be supportive of your friend. You want to be able to to be there for them. Um, and recognizing, obviously, some of the symptoms that they might be going through and encouraging them to get the help uh, I think is some of what what we addressed before um, in some of our talks as well, but I just kind of want to echo that.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. And I want to thank Troy once again for uh, inviting us to be on this panel and to share this information and thank the panelists as well. And just to close, thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank
0: you to our panel members. And thank you to um, our faculty members in the audience who brought classes. Um, Have a great afternoon. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.